you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to open up to 1 Corinthians 16. It's kind of a bittersweet day for me as we end our journey through this letter from Paul. Uh, It's always sad, in a way, to end the book, but man, the way that Paul ends this, I think it's a word for us today, Um, especially at any point in our lives, but I think especially today, with the political climate that we're in, with the world that we live in, Paul is going to give us some strong words here. So what I want to do here for us uh, this morning before we read, I, I just want to give us three reflections about what makes this unique. As you look at this letter, if you just briefly look uh, at the end of chapter 16, you'll notice that Paul is addressing a lot of very specific people. And this is oftentimes when in our Bible reading we might tune out, like he's just closing the letter, and this is when we really see that this might not be a word for us, that this is really a specific word for a group of people. But let me give you three reasons why this is a specific word for us today and why it should give us hope. The first reason is this, is that we can see from this letter, it is historical. Paul is writing to real people at a real church who have seen the real risen Lord Jesus. The Bible that we have is not just a theological textbook, it's not a theological treaty, it is boots on the ground, how we should live as Christians now with the risen Lord Savior. And what's amazing about this historical document here is that the New Testament writings are some of the best preserved ancient documents that we have. It's incredible. If you have any, you know, worry about, you know, can I trust the Bible? How do I know that this is the Bible that, you know, Paul really wrote? How do I know that somebody didn't get in there and tamper with it? We have, within the New Testament, 27 books, And with that, we have found over 6,000 manuscripts that date back to the original times when these would have been written, 40, 50, 60 AD, right when the church is taking off. So if we think that we've just gotten a letter that's been passed down, re-recorded, 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 in a way that's true, yes. But what we also have is 6,000 of these manuscripts that would have been what the original church readers would have seen and been passed around from church to church. It's nothing short of amazing. What we have, we can verify. This means that we have accurate recordings of what the early church thought, taught, and believed. And that means as we open up this letter, we can join with the universal church throughout all of history with with confidence. We don't have to second guess what they taught or believed. We have it right here. The second is that because it's historical, it becomes incredibly practical to see how grace works in a tangible way in real life situations, which means that this letter is instructional. It's applicable to our lives. We learn what God has done and how we should respond as believers in Jesus as his church. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't interpretive challenges when reading Old Mel, but it doesn't mean that what we have, it's not outdated. It's not Uh, It's not outdated, it is needed for us today. And we see in this last portion of scripture how living in the reality of the resurrection is instructional for us. And the last thing that I wanna point out for us before we read this last portion is that scripture, that it's authoritative. Scripture says this, that all authority, or rather Jesus says this, and it's recorded in scripture, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to who? To Jesus. 
And the apostles were chosen by Jesus to go disciple, baptize, plant churches, minister to the need of people. How? By proclaiming the good news that God has come to us in Christ Jesus the Messiah. That the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Jesus is the Lord and has authority over life and death and has the power to raise you from the dead. Now the scripture that we have here, think about what Paul says in chapter 14. He says, if anyone thinks that they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. So what we have in scripture is given to us by the Lord through his people, his apostles writing it down, and it's authoritative in our lives because Jesus has all authority. So today, as we open up and read this last portion of scripture, it's historical, it's instructional, it's an authoritative for our lives. So if you have your Bible with you, in 1 Corinthians, I'm going to read, starting in verse 5 in chapter 16. Paul says this, After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while, or even spend the winter, so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits but I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door of effective work is opened up to me and there are many who oppose me. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos. I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. You know, the household of Stephanus was the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunus, and Achaeus arrived, because they have supplied what was lacking from you, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. In this final section from Paul, what I want us to focus on is, is two main things that Paul has said here. The first is going to be in verse 13, where he says, Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. Now, what does it mean for us to be on guard? This might be translated in your Bible as keep alert. This has strong eschatological overtones. Now, eschatological is just a fancy $5 word, theological, that means end times. So Paul is frequently, he will use these words like be on your guard, keep alert, because Jesus is coming. The end is near. Now, ever since I was a child, well, when I was a child, it seemed that 
everyone was sure that the second coming of Christ was going to happen in their lifetime or in my lifetime. I, I still remember going over to my grandparents' house uh, as a young child, and it, it was right when Left Behind came out, so it was really popular, and they would just circulate all these stories about, uh, there was one story that my grandmother shared. It was so bizarre that she had a friend that was driving down the road and picked up this hitchhiker, and the hitchhiker said, Jesus is coming back soon, and then he disappeared, and they were like, it's an angel, and everybody was losing their mind. It's, it's a crazy story. It's a crazy story. But it was, it was that. It was like this fear, like the Lord's going to come back, and am I going to be ready? My greatest fear as a kid, thinking about the second return of Christ, was that we were going to be called up, and I could not find my mom. And I get in heaven and be like, okay, I see you, Jesus, but first I got to find mom. Like, this is, it's only safe if mom's here, right? I remember if I'd be away from her at any period of time, like as an eight, nine-year-old, it would just, it would leave me in fear. For me as a child, if you read the Left Behind series, to be alert meant to watch out for the Antichrist. Who's the Antichrist? Is it this president that's coming in, or is it this politician, or is it this world leader? And so it would, to keep alert, for me as a kid, meant to watch out for the Antichrist and look out for Jesus because he's coming. But if we look closely at what Paul is saying here, I think it has a, a different kind of reflection for us. Yes, keep on guard. The Lord is going to return soon. But when Paul uses this elsewhere in Scripture to keep alert or be on guard, it's also, it's mainly to admonish his readers to watch their own lives intently. It's meant for the readers to take um, inventory of their own life. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 13. He says this, And do this, understanding the present time, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believe. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and je jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. And after working through 1 Corinthians, we know that this is what Paul has in mind. The church is, is so divided. They do not operate in a manner of love. They are excluding people from coming to the Lord's table. They're getting drunk on the wine. They are abusing their rights, not thinking about how it might hurt another brother or sister in Christ. They are celebrating affairs that are happening within the church and calling them good. And Paul says, be alert. Watch your own life carefully. The Lord is coming soon. So for us today, this is a practical word to be on guard, to be alert. But how do we do that? What is a practical way for us to be on our guard? The Proverbs, the author of Proverbs has one way, I think, that is very intentional for us. Proverbs 3.24 says this, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. This echoes the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, where he's going to say, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. You want to know what your life is made of? Look at 
the words that you speak and the actions that you do because out of that, the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The heart is often used as another word for the emotional side of who we are. You know how the heart can be related to who we are as a person. Think of how we use it in our common language day to day. We can use the heart to describe desire, grit, or determination. We'll say things about an athlete like, man, he has a lot of heart. He has a lot of passion. He's there for it. Or we might see a friend that is going through a tough season in life, and we might think, man, you just have a really heavy heart. And this is exactly what's caused so much trouble in the Corinthian church. Divisions, allowing to carry on sin, not caring about fellow brothers and sisters. It's the desires of the heart. Their desires have divided the church. So to be alert, to to be on guard, is to guard our hearts. The psalmist in Psalm 90 says, Lord, teach us to number our days so that we may gain what? A heart of wisdom. It's the same idea from, from Paul to the psalmist that your days are numbered, the Lord's returning soon, be on guard, guard your heart. So what are ways that we can practically guard our heart? I have a couple of questions for us. The, the first thing that I would say for us to guard our heart rightly is to be before you do. Be before you do. Understand who you are in Christ Jesus before you attempt to do anything outside of that. Question for you. On just a scale of one to five, just in your mind, five being the greatest, one being the lowest, where would you rank yourself in this? I spend sufficient time alone with God to sustain my work for God so that I live out a cup that overflows. You cannot pour out of an empty cup. We, as believers in Christ Jesus, must be continually being filled with the word that guards our hearts so that we can be people that walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Have you ever been in seasons of life where you're just, you're run, you are burnt out? You are just running hard. And you get home and your kids are ready maybe to play with you or wife's ready to spend time with you and you're just like, man, I'm I'm just tired. I, I just need a break. Think about it within your own church life, your own church family. And are you able to participate in, in Sunday school or in life groups or things within the ministry? Or, or is it just like, man, that's just too much for me. I just got too much going on. I can't handle that. You're burnt out. Do you spend sufficient time alone with God to sustain my work for God so that I live out of a cup that overflows? And, and hear me, I'm not asking this question as someone that does that awesome. Man, week to week, it changes for me. Where I, I will go like, Seven days, and I, I will have prepared a sermon and thought, man, Lord, are you, have I stopped to consider you in this? It's convicting for us all. And what I don't want you to see is a pastor that stands up here as the example to live by. No, I want you to see somebody that is in need of King Jesus and comes to him humbly as, as you go to him humbly. And we encourage each other to do the same thing. Second question. I set apart a 24-hour period each week for Sabbath-keeping to stop, to rest, to delight, and to contemplate God. To be on your guard means that we need to 
take the Lord's commands seriously, to rest and delight in Him. How often, when, when, is the, when is the last time, friend, just consider in your mind, when is the last time that you have spent time in stillness and in silence reflecting on the Lord? You see, when we think about being on our guard, we think about being obedient and doing right things and serving the needy, and, and those are all good things. Those are all wonderful things. But the Lord also gives us limits for our good. The Lord also gives us reasons to stop because he's given us the church that comes in alongside of us. When's the last time you have seriously stopped to rest and to delight and contemplate in the Lord? Next question. I regularly spend time in solitude and silence. This enables me to be still and undistracted in God's presence. You know, one of the good things, but really one of the bad things for us is that we are never away from noise. You wake up, the TV's on. You get in the car, the radio plays or a podcast plays. You get to work, somebody's in your ear. You go home, the podcast is back on. You get back on, the TV's back on, or uh, your children are, are there with you. And then at the end of it, you're so burnt out, for, especially Jess and I, it's like we, we've reached our max with all the noise and all the volume of the kids. When we finally get the kids down, it's like we take a breath, and then what do we do? We just sit there uh, together, we turn on a show, and then we go to bed. And then we start it all back over. Is there time for serious silence and solitude being before the Lord? Do we take Jesus' words to where he commands us to go and pray? When you go and pray, don't go out to the street where everybody sees you and you're loud and you, you make noise so that you get glory from that. Do you go into your home, into your private room? Do you sit in silence and pray? This is one way. This is probably the most practical way for us to be on guard is to make sure that we are always living our lives in submission to the Lord King Jesus, being filled up by his word, led by his spirit, and we seek to do everything for his glory. To guard our hearts means that before we do, we must center ourselves in God to remind ourselves of God's love, power, and presence in our lives to live in light of the resurrection and that he has called us into adoption and sonship through Lord Jesus according to his pleasure and will. You see, what happens when we don't uh, spend sufficient time alone with God or we don't have a, a, a period of Sabbath keeping or solitude and silence of being in his word, what we can often be tempted to do is doubt God's goodness and love for us. We can begin to doubt whether he really cares about me at all. But when we open up the scriptures and we see what they have to say about us who are in Christ Jesus, it says that we have been set apart for adoption in Jesus Christ. For what? Because of his pleasure and his will. The psalmist says about you who are in Christ Jesus, who are the Lord's, he says that he delights over you with singing. Think about the mother that lays her baby to sleep and sings a song gently, comforting the child, putting them down, praying over them. This is the Lord's affection for you, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if, if we don't stop to consider and think about that, we are prone to wonder, we're prone to forget. Be before you do. What do all of the deeds and darkness have in common that Paul said about 
uh, carousing, drunkenness, sexual immorality, debauchery, dissension, jealousy, they are all pooling from the heart. Meaning we want to find our gratification or our satisfaction or satisfi- satisfaction in the Lord, uh, in other things outside of the Lord Jesus. I want to find my satisfaction in um, bad sexual desire. I want to find my satisfaction in drunkenness to numb the pain. I find my satisfaction in jealousy, thinking that, man, if I just had that, I would be okay. And so we pursue those things. No, we must take guard of our heart. The second way that we guard our heart is to follow the crucified and not the Americanized Jesus. To follow the crucified and not the Americanized Jesus. Here's a couple of questions for us. I have rejected the world's definition of success, meaning bigger, better, popular, attain earthly security. I've rejected the world's definition of success to become the person God has called me to become and to do what God has called me to do. Second question, I take a lot of time to carefully discern when my plans and ambitions are legitimately for the glory of God and when they cross the line into my own desire for greatness. Question number three, I rarely change the way that I act so others will think highly of me or to assure a particular outcome. my friends that are in high school, church members that are in high school, this is like one of the most tempting things that are gonna be for you, especially as uh, you look towards going into college and finding a different place to land. Where is it safe for you? You're finally gonna be away from mom and dad and you're gonna be working out what you think and believe on your own and you're gonna have this temptation. You're gonna have this temptation to uh, be who you're not in certain situations so that you might be accepted by other people and will sometimes change the way that we act or behave so that it can assure a particular outcome. Why do I speak to you in in that way? Because I was there, and I know, and I did it. I don't say it from a position of authority or power. I'm just saying it, and it's not just for you. It's for adults that go into the workforce. How many people that you know go to church on Sunday But then when they get into the workforce or around people at work, their language changes. The way that they joke changes. The way that they talk about others change. And this is when we follow the Americanized version of Jesus that says, man, I worship Jesus on Sunday and I'm just just living life the rest of the days. And because we are not satisfied or we're not following the crucified Jesus, we have to find our security in the way that other people think about us. Do we follow the crucified Jesus? Question number four, listening to Jesus and surrendering my will to his will is more important than any other project, program, or cause. The Americanized Jesus says, you can be all you want to be. You can fulfill your dreams and destiny. You can fulfill your purpose, plans, and pleasures. But the real Jesus, the crucified Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. Lay down your life. Paul will say, those who lose their life will actually gain it. This life isn't about me. And when when we realize that, we can be so much more content 
in the things that don't go our way, in, in the dreams or the designs for my life that didn't pan out or didn't work out. We can be so much more content in, in the circumstances of our life that have failed because we follow the crucified Christ and this life isn't about me. This world is not my home. This will all be made new one day in Christ Jesus. The second encouragement that Paul gives us, the first was be on your guard. The second one is to stand firm in the faith. The Corinthians have been reminded here to ground their identity in the gospel by holding fast to the message that he proclaimed to them. And if you look back at chapter 15, this is exactly how he opened up the chapter and ended the chapter talking about the resurrection. What is our faith that we stand firm in? It's the reality and the truth that Christ has defeated the grave. And you will too if you are in Christ Jesus. He has the power to raise you from the dead. That Jesus is the Lord over heaven and earth. It is good. He's coming back. Death no longer has power. Death no longer has sting. Because dry, the risen Jesus Christ is standing in victory. Paul says this. Now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. Which you have received and on which you take your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word that's preached to you or stand firm in this. He ends it by saying, therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that you labor and the Lord is not in vain. Friend, if you are in Christ Jesus, your life is not in vain. You might be in seasons of sin and wandering and not knowing where to go or what to do next. You might be in seasons of a down or might be an up, but you can war through your sin with resilience because Christ is one. It's not in vain. You can lay down your rights or what you want to happen. You can lose yourself for Christ Jesus because he is one. And Paul says this in Galatians, grace and peace to you from our Lord uh, for God and our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. And then he goes on to say, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He says, but even if an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Here's the question I have for you. Question of reflection for our heart. I have rejected the idea that serving God makes him like me more and trust fully on the grace and work of Christ alone. In other words, do I still work at hoping that God will be happy with me? Do I, do I go to church hoping that I will have one or two tokens of God's favor for me? Or do I rest completely satisfied in the grace and work of Christ alone? Stand firm in that faith that Jesus has rescued us from our sins and there's no rescuing that I can do on my own. The next portion that Paul gives us is this phrase, be courageous and be strong. Now, I just want to make a quick note here. This might be um, for a different conversation, but I think it's important for us, especially um, in the world that we live in right now. Some of your translations might say, be strong, be courageous, act like men. 
And I do not think that that is the best translation for this passage. While I also hold to the fact that we need men who are strong and courageous in the church to lead their families, to love Christ Jesus, and to war against sin well. We need people to do this. But when we read this phrase, to act like men, this can give reason for a lot of different interpretations and ways that that plays out within the church that are not helpful. Consider the philosophical discussions during our current life right now. What does it mean to be manly? And to be manly becomes synonymous with being virtuous. So what we'll do when we think men are acting like men to be strong and courageous, we will promote people that we think are men that are acting godly when they're really acting sinfully. Okay? Consider someone... Um, golly. Consider our favorite politicians that we like to tout up. And just because they, they say Christian words and they're acting, acting with courageous to fight against the swamp or the people or whatever it is, we'll think that these are godly men when in fact they're not. And we have seen entire churches that have shifted their attitude and behavior because we think that being men is to war and be courageous and fight and stand up against, and and in turn, it turns into vileness. What does Paul mean when he says to be strong and to be courageous? We know that Paul uses words uh, that is deeply connected to the Old Testament. And I believe that Paul is pulling from Psalm 31 here. Let me read Psalm 31. And then let me show you how it connects throughout 1 Corinthians. He says this. Love the Lord, all you who his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts haughty. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. So let's break this down in the next slide and see where Paul has been using this all throughout 1 Corinthians. This is Psalm 31 again and all throughout 1 Corinthians. Love the Lord, all you who saints. This is a command given to us in 1 Corinthians 16. The Lord preserves the faithful but abundantly repays the one who acts haughtily. We saw Paul address this in 1 Corinthians 4, chapter 5, chapter 8, chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 14. We saw Paul pull from Psalm 31 In this chapter, be strong and let your heart take courage. 1 Corinthians 16, all you who wait for the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1. Paul is echoing this psalm to help us understand that authentic strength is grounded in trustful waiting in the Lord. Authentic strength and courage to be courageous and strong is the man or woman who is resilient in waiting for the Lord and will delight in his appearing. It is not the one who repays evil with evil. It is not the one with vile conduct. It's to understand that strength and courage are rooted in love for God and set in opposition to arrogance and boasting. And the reason I think, just to close this out, why I don't think this is the most helpful uh, to act like men is for a few reasons. We know that Paul is not only addressing men in the church. He's addressing both men and women. 
So if this is the translation that we should use, are we now commending women to act like men? Absolutely not. We are commending men and women to be strong and courageous and wait for the Lord. To be strong and courageous and wait for the Lord. Then Paul ends and says, let everything be done in love. For the sake of time, uh, I'm just going to point you back to our sermons on 1 Corinthians 8 and 13, but I would encourage you to examine yourself in this way with these two questions. First, would pe- people would describe me as someone who makes loving well my number one aim. Where would you be on that as, on a scale of one to five? People would describe me as someone who makes loving well my number one aim. Number two, I am regularly able to enter into the experiences and feelings of the other people to connecting deeply with them and taking time to imagine what it feels like to live in their shoes. Are you empathetic for other people? Do you consider what they're feeling or thinking or why they might be behaving or acting in this way? And then Paul gives us a very clear example of what it means to love well. In verse 15, he says, You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors in it. What Paul is saying is to look at the love of Stephanus and his devotion to service for the church. How do you love well? How do you be on guard, stand firm in the faith, be strong and courageous? How do you love well for your service and devotion to Christ's church, his body? Then lastly, uh, Paul says this in verse 22. He says, if anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. Now this might strike us is needlessly abrasive. Why at the conclusion of a letter appealing for love in the community does Paul feel the need to pronounce a curse on those who do not share his passion for the Lord Jesus? The question is important because it reminds us of the substantial attention that Paul gives in this letter to the call for the community to discipline. The Christian community as a community of love, is not infinitely inclusive. Those who reject Jesus are not and cannot be a part of it. At Alpine, we we have made it, I pray, abundantly clear that anyone is, is welcome to attend our service. It doesn't matter your political affiliation or background. It doesn't matter your sexual orientation. You are welcome to come in and hear the gospel preached in our church service. But if you deny the risen Lord Jesus, if you do not love him, and you're not submitting your life to his lordship, you are not welcome to join us as members at Alpine First Baptist Church. Those who reject Jesus are not and cannot be a part of this community. So remember, in chapter 12, when Paul is pleading for the acceptance of differences within the community, he introduces this plea by saying that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says, let Jesus be cursed. Those who destroy community are, by definition, not loving the Lord. 
and those who love the Lord will seek to build community and serve the church like Stephanus. In this last portion, man, this is, this is my favorite part. If you've tuned me out for the, this entire sermon, come back in with me here. This is my absolute favorite part of this letter. It's when Paul says, Maranatha. And it's this Aramaic term that simply means, come, Lord Jesus. So much of my life is distracted by the things that I need to accomplish, the things that go on day to day, and that's understandably so. That's what life does. But this prayer by Paul, he is imploring the Lord Jesus to return. You see, when, we are, we are, when we're not on guard, we are tempted to believe that this world is our home and that if I can just make enough money or, or have enough things that I'll be satisfied and, and comfortable here. And so we might wonder, well, maybe I don't want the Lord to return. But no, this is the prayer, the consummation of the resurrection of the dead, the subjugation of all hostile powers and the final triumph of God. See, friends, we can all confess here that life is hard. It's hard. I long for the day. I long for it when I am no longer temptable, deceivable, capable of sin, or able to love anything else more than the Lord Jesus. So I pray, come Lord Jesus. I long for the day when I no longer feel pain, anxiety, stress, or longing, when I will no longer chase fleeting or dying things, when sickness and death are finally destroyed. What do we pray? Come, Lord Jesus. I look forward to the day when all things are made new, to see creation rejoice in seeing at the revealing of the children of God and the Son of Man returning, for everything will be restored as it should be. So what do we pray? Come, Lord Jesus. I look forward to the day when there are no longer endless political debates of broken leaders in a corrupted system, but that the one true King will reign forever with goodness and peace. So we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Come, like, let this be our heart's desire. After every service that we attend, after every time we repent of sin, after every failure or every joy, let it always be echoed by, come, Lord Jesus. I look forward to the day when my faith will be made sight. And as John says in Revelation, where he will wipe every tear away from my eye. So I pray, come, Lord Jesus. Friend, for you that are in Christ Jesus, you can pray this prayer with confidence because he loves you. He loves you. For those who have not responded in repentance and faith to Lord Jesus, you don't want to pray this prayer. Rather, what you want to do is respond by coming to him. In Revelation, Jesus says, all who are thirsty are welcome to come. If you find yourself in need of Christ Jesus in your sin, you are welcome to come to him. And he's not going to ask any questions. He's just going to give you his love and righteousness on you as you come to him in repentance and faith.